Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the show where we talk about web development and the people that make it happen. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring and my co-host, David Walsh, creator of the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How's it going today, David? I'm well. How are you? I'm very well. Um, there's like photographers and stuff that have been behind you. What's what's going on? Yeah, I have a... I have a a special uh, video to be shared within the within the next month or so. So I'm going to keep it on wraps for now. All right, all right. But we're, we'll we'll keep it we'll keep it quiet for now. I just got pinged on my phone that we are live. We are live. We are live. Does your phone do that? It it does now. So like for a long time, my phone was all like borked up. I have like a Pixel One, which is I mean it's still a fine phone, but like it's super old at this point. But I recently like reformatted it and like just like wiped it and said, no, I don't want to restore anything. I'm going to install the apps I actually want. And it is so much better now. Like it was reminiscent of like back in the day when like every six months you needed to like reformat your hard drive with like Windows 95 and Windows 98 or all your games ran really shitty. And so it just became a thing that like, oh, six months, it's time to reformat my hard drive. Hang on, we got we to gotta start start over. Like, Android's just like that. I had to do that during my my piracy heyday, where, you know, you like you didn't care what virus came down to your computer because you were going to reformat it in, like, two months anyways. You get the game, you put it on the external, wipe clean, do it again. But you're Except saying the that, next, that... The next time you act the game, it's right back on your box. See, the thing was, I was just downloading them because I could. I never actually played the game, so this would never happen. But you're saying that Android phones are the same way. I'm saying for whatever reason, over the course of two years, my Android phone became like super unstable. The notifications didn't work. The battery was just chewing up. And like I just needed to like throw the whole thing away and reformat it. Why and not? It works, it works iPhone. great now. Why not iPhone? I, it, it's probably the same way with an iPhone. I just don't have an iPhone. <laughs> okay iPhones are awesome. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right, but we have a guest today. We have a guest. Uh, my uh, partner in crime on TrackJS, Mr. Eric Brandis, the co-founder and CTO of TrackJS JavaScript Air Monitoring, the renowned web developer and crotchety old man. Thank Thanks you guys for being for, with us. Thank you guys for having me. This will be fun. So how we uh, like to start the show with our guests is to hear a little bit about how you got into software. So your your origin story. How did you get interested in this? How did you wind up in web development as, as a job, as a career? I have been a big nerd for a long time. Uh, so the, the, my first programming memory actually was in the basement of my grandparents' house. And they had an old 386, IBM 386 PC that you guys might remember. Oh, yeah. And, um, they in that machine, the notable thing about a 386 was that it had QBasic on it. And so I think a lot of people of sort of our generation, kind of in their mid to late 30s, probably have a QBasic story, right? Or more than one, possibly. And so that was actually my first um, experience with programming was, was that QBasic on that 386, which was super dope. Uh, and that kind of, um, th- that got me excited about programming. But then the I guess what, what really got me into web development was I was in like fifth grade, maybe. I was young. And this dude was like, hey, if you create a, a .html file in Notepad and you, you use this program called FTP to put it on this thing called GeoCities, like anyone in the world can see it. And so that was actually the first website I ever made was, this, you know, the classic Notepad XE plus, you know, the HTML file. And that was pretty cool. I had like an animated GIF with skull and crossbones. I had like a guest book eventually. I mean, it like, you know, it grew from there, right? Eventually I got like, you know, a real PHP backend. Um, I just thought the fact that you could, you know, anyone in the whole world could come see what you were doing and you could publish that content to anyone. I thought that was was pretty fantastic. So that was, that was what really got me uh, started on the whole web thing. And I've been doing it ever since, since, you know, 1995 or, or whatever it was. So... 
I feel cheated not knowing that GeoCities allowed FTP because I was using their text box for ages. Oh. I didn't even know this was a thing. Dude, and so you like, and it wasn't well, as I recall, it wasn't super well documented. Um, you had like, they did. That describes it. most of the web. But, at that but point yeah, because <laughs> I remember tripod, tripod was the alternative, right? So there's GeoCities and Tripod and Tripod was cool because it was very upfront. Like you can FTP all day long on this thing. Right. Um, but GeoCities was where the action was, right? It was like, this is like, this is the cool site. But yeah, you definitely could. Um, and I used, if you guys remember Netscape Composer. So that was like their suite of web dev tools. So that was like one step up from Notepad. And they actually have like a GeoCities integration in there, nice. as I recall. So anyways, that was, those are kind of, I, I look at those like the good old days, right? I'm like, right. This, you know, like, ugh, kids today, they don't know what it was like. Right. Um, I, I think I discovered what FTP was in that era of like, how do I upload like my crappy websites faster? And through discovering what FTP was, I think I discovered the wonderful world of like online piracy. Yeah, where's baby? Remember through, through the where's like, scene? <laughs> yeah, dude. And just trolling through like all of the, the archives of FTP servers that came down with when you downloaded some of the FTP clients, they just said, oh yeah, here's a directory of like all of these servers that you can hook into and like yeah. download stuff from. Um, and that got me, honestly, the where's thing was like a gateway drug for me because at the time I had to get online using AOL, right? I mean, as sad as that was, that was what I had for a long time. And, uh, so that got me into like, I don't know if you guys ever got into this, but like you could like blow up chat rooms and like kick people off of, <laughs> yeah. of chat rooms. And like, um, you may remember the ping of death, right? We'd be like, hey man, what's your IP address? And then they'd give it to you. And then you send them the ping of death and their computer would blue screen, you know, like, oh, <laughs> the best. Those were the, the days, times. man. So that, but I mean, like that's what got, I mean, that's what got me started. And I was like, this is the world's greatest technology ever. Um, so 20 years later, it's 20 years later, and Todd's telling me that this week on the show, we're having the Galileo of modern <laughs> web apps. So what, is, what does that mean? So I don't, I don't know how much you know about Galileo, but he was actually persecuted um, as part of, I think it was like the Roman Inquisition because of his beliefs. And he believed through scientific study that the earth revolved around the sun or heliocentrism, right? Which is what we know today. And, and Copernicus actually came up with the idea before Galileo ever did, uh, but it wasn't as like popular. And Galileo was, was quite renowned at the time. And, uh, you know, he was like, actually Copernicus is right. Like the earth does rotate around the sun. Uh, and, and the Pope didn't like that. The Pope was like, no, no, no. The Bible says X, right? We interpret the Bible to say X and you're saying Y and that's incompatible. This sounds a lot like Protestantism, you're going to jail. Um, and so, but Galileo, it turns out, was right. And so the reason I call myself the Galileo of, of web apps is because, and I've yet to be proven right, so I'm still in the persecution phase. Right? <laughs> um, but, I, but I think this move towards single-page applications um, and, you know, everything's got to be client-rendered and all this, this newfangled everything, um, I think that people are going to start pulling away from that. I think we're going to go back to to kind of the old days of, of you know server rendering has a, a huge place. I think we're already starting to see that pendulum swing. But but years ago when I was talking about this, like single page applications, they're not the answer for most problems. Even people are like, no, no, that's you know you're wrong, Eric. You obviously don't know what you're talking about. Um, and so I've I've long held what I call sort of heretical beliefs. Um, so I, you know, on web development, on unit testing, on agile software, I mean, if you name it, I probably have an unconventional belief about software. So that's why I went with the Galileo moniker. I, I'm with you. I'm actually with you there. Todd, tiebreaker. Well, no, we're together. You're on I mean, out. It, it, it depends on, on, on which thing we're talking about, right? Like the single page apps, I, I totally agree. I mean... Uh, when when it was in its heyday, right? When it was like, I would say that, that was even before uh, the current phase of, of Angular and React and Vue. I would say that was, you know, Backbone and Knockout JS, and everybody wanted to build a single page web app. It was it was the microservices of its day mm -hmm. was building single page web apps, and people who just they just needed to deliver text and images on a page, but they thought they thought the best way to do that was to use a backbone JS site. 
and build a RESTful API, even though they, I mean, it was static HTML that maybe had a button on it. And I don't understand it. I didn't understand it. I I was going to say, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that it's, it's new, right? And, and developers like new things, right? We like fun, new technologies and, and, you know, so, what makes me maybe different than most developers is that I am like a raging pessimist, right? So like, I just like a new thing. I'm like, how's it going to break in production, right? Like, when am I going to get called at 2 a.m. when this thing goes down, right? And But a lot of developers are optimists, which is a great quality to have 98.3% of your life. But when it comes to identifying and picking new like tech stacks, a little bit of skepticism, I think, is good. Um, and so, you know, and, and I, I remember I used to get really excited about new tech Two, until I'd gotten burnt, you know, it's like putting your hand on the stove after the sixth time, you're like, okay, it's hot. Like I gotta, you know, I'm gonna wait a little while. Um, But I think it's just the natural developer tendency to just get super stoked about the new stuff, even if the new stuff isn't actually better. You know, it's new. Right, a lot of times it's like, well, it doesn't do it now, but it will one day. But by the time that one day comes, the next new thing is out and you're in this perpetual cycle of like diving into new stuff Mm -hmm. that's causing problems you know, with the the old new stuff, for example. Yep. Yeah, I was on a I was on a, a, a contract once, and these these guys had this this brilliant architecture all laid out, and a, a big part of it was 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 going to be Kafka and this database called Event Store and all this like really bleeding edge tech, and it was just fun to watch them go down this rabbit hole of like, okay, well, K- Kafka can't talk to Event Store this way, but the alpha version of this software can't. So let's get the alpha version in here, and then that would have problems that they need to get. You know the other pre-release version of this, you know, and by the time it was all put together, none of it worked. Um, but they, they had a great time doing it. So I don't know, maybe they, <laughs> maybe they were right. Maybe that's the, <laughs> maybe that's the way to go. Maybe right. it's optimized for fun. Yeah. The app didn't work, but hell, we had a good time. Doing exactly. <laughs> and I guess that's, um, you know, that's always been kind of, my focus is always on the results of, I want the thing to work or the problem to be solved um, I don't particularly care how I solve it. So I like, I actually kind of like like dirty and gross and like sort of, you know, hacky solutions. Um, as long as the, as long as the problem is, 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 you know, solved. So. So how would you say, um, let's, let's apply this specifically to web development and how, how would you say web development has changed over the last 10 to 15 years? I think it used to be the thing that I loved about the web was the low barrier to entry. So you could find some free host somewhere that would have like a, you know, a two megabyte upload limit. Um, and you could put your HTML on there and like this thing, boom, is publicly available, right? It was the lowest barrier to entry to worldwide global publishing that you could imagine. But that doesn't really like, in a way that kind of exists, like you can still kind of get online and stuff. But if, but if you want to do it right in 2018, there's this whole like litany of other things that you need to know. Like everything's gotten more complicated. It used to be so simple. And now, I mean, to make a website that kind of looks the part in 2018, you've got, you know, tons of styling requirements. You've got tons of JavaScript stuff that you have to know. If you want that right level of interactivity that users are kind of accustomed to, you've got this, this whole amount of work. And, um, it's, it's not clear to me. Like, so things are more complicated and we've got some more rich experiences on the internet but it's not clear to me that it's been a, a total win that we've, you know, that it's, it's just all better. Right. I, I feel like that low barrier to entry was pretty great. Like there was a lot of really interesting websites that really don't have a place in 2018 on the internet anymore. Like some guy wants to post like a cool pizza recipe or something, right? Like where do you, I mean, I'm sure there's a recipe posting website, but like if you just want to throw that up on your own. It's a lot harder now. You know, and it's got to be HTTPS, right? And so now you've got to figure out how do I configure, you know, SSL and all that other stuff. So I think that the complexity is, has really skyrocketed on the web. But, but it's not all bad, right? Like there's definitely some things that are better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I, so I look at, you know, Gmail and Google Maps, right? Are like two incredible web experiences that feel like native, native applications in a lot of ways, right? Like they're really rich and they do this great job. And, and in some ways, they're almost a problem because Gmail works so well. Everyone's like, God, we, we got to build an app that's just like Gmail. G- Gmail destroyed the desktop mail client. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and they should have, right? I mean, it was, and the web is super great from that perspective, right? You have this constantly fresh 
you know, app that you're using. You don't have to download updates. Like they just, you go to the page and it's, it's, it's new. But Gmail did such a good job and Google Maps does such a good job that everybody says, hey, we can build a website just like them, right? The problem is that they're not Google. They don't have the resources of Google. They're not willing to spend the time it takes to dial in that polish like Google does. And they don't have data centers all over the world so that the round trip time of those packets between the browser and the server is like, you know, super low, like two digit milliseconds. And you need to do all those things to make that app, that single page app work just like Gmail. You know what I mean? So like, I see a ton of single page websites now that, you know, you go to like a bank, like I think Chase, Chase, or maybe it's City. I can't remember, but one of those guys, you you load the page and like there's eight web spinners. You know what I mean? And, it's, and they all kind of pop in and you're like, how is this better? Like you guys did a single page, all right. It just looks hilarious. And every time you click, every time you click more spinners, you know, like, but when you click on an email in, in Gmail, it's there, you know what I mean? And so like, like Google has nailed that. Whereas everyone else is just trying to play catch up. But I think that a lot of people that don't have the resources of Google would be better off just using kind of the, the old tech. Right. But t- to your point, I definitely agree. Like things have improved a lot. Styling is way better, right? Like CSS. Well, I mean, pre-CSS, right? Like you're using attributes on tables, like BG color equals, you know, red or whatever, right? So like styling has gotten way better. Um, Even JavaScript, like the browser inconsistencies aren't nearly as awful as they used to be. Like, do you remember doing IE6 development, right? Like, okay, it all works. Now we got to make it work in IE6. And like, that was, those are sad days. So I think, you know, I think in a lot of ways there has been a lot of improvement, but I think um, if you talk to people in like accessibility circles, I think there's actually been a lot of steps back to a lot of these, these newfangled, you know, single page things really make it hard for people that focus on, on web accessibility. Um, and to do a good job of making a site accessible now is much harder than it used to be. So I think, you know, there's definitely some trade-offs. It's unfortunate that stuff like accessibility takes such a backseat right? Because something like accessibility is probably two or three, you know, sort of new web technologies behind. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, most places are, you know, solely focused on getting something to work and not getting something accessible. Yep. Unless someone makes like a big, a big stink about it. Yep. Um, Absolutely. So what do you what do you think are some of the mistakes that we've made? We've you, like we've talked about one page apps in the in this spinner madness that you're talking about, <laughs> also, like drives me crazy. Um, do do you see a spot where somewhere we went wrong? I mean, so th- this is again my opinion only. So warning, inflammatory content ahead. <laughs> um, you know, it used to be when you were building a website, the front end was kind of a, an afterthought, right? Like accessibility is today. Um, like the front end was like, okay, we'll just slap some HTML out. Like the, 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 the big devs worked on the server, right? And this was like, you know, all the hardcore engineering problems were back end, And the front end was like, just slap some HTML on it and it's fine. And over time, the front end has become a real thing. And I, I can't, I don't know exactly who's driven that the most, but I, I do get a sense that there are a lot of people driving this, this, this complexity that they want the front end to be as complicated as the back end so that they can feel like they're really, you know, maybe arch developers or whatever. I don't know. But I think one of the great things about the front end was how simple it could be, um, you know, and, and everything gets more complicated as you add new features and you and you and you build more functionality into it, right? And the web is, I mean, look at what people are doing with web apps now. You've got Electron, right? Like the the best way to write a cross-platform desktop app today is to use the web, right? I mean, it's it's wild. Um, so I you know, there is a lot more functionality and stuff, but I do think that there's been there's not been any kind of check or balance on adding the complexity. Like when I look at the TC39 language proposals, some of the things that are getting fast tracked, like they're going to put observables into the language, right? Like observables are, are, I think as far last I heard, were like on deck to get implemented. And like there's some new operators, like a pipe operator and some other things. I'm like, do we really need this? Like is, is adding this new sigil, this new syntax, is that, is that helping us? 
or is that just like I can crow about it now? And it's like one more thing where I can kind of like show off to my buddy and say, look, I just used the, I nested the spread operator and this deconstructor thing. And I'm using the pipe operator and I got observables and like, look at, you know, look at this thing I built. How much of it is kind of scratching your own ego, you know? And, and again, I, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm old and I'm, I'm crotchety. So it's, it's also new. It's also new. Well, the How good much news of that, that is crap. The good, the good news is that all three of us are old and crotchety <laughs> in different ways. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, I think my mind is going in a crotchety way. I also think that like one thing that sort of started bugging me about the the way that the web went is that you know mobile started taking over. And then suddenly we were trying to implement all of these mobile features inside of the browser, but they weren't doing it nearly as well. And we were in this really weird state where we were trying to mimic something from mobile inside the browser. They didn't exactly match. And we sort of found ourselves in a, in a really sort of weird error prone spot. And sometimes, you- and sometimes it felt like even the browser side of things wasn't even necessarily finished. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about things like kind of the geolocation APIs and the right. battery APIs and some of right. that stuff that's like get access to those underlying phone internals? Right. Yeah. I yeah. It, well, and it was it was like we got to slap this thing out, right? Like um, a, a great example I think is um like web components. Like, have you done a lot with the, the web component stuff at all? You like know, the- I started with web components like six seven years ago, and they just never took off, and it, and it seemed like. I know that now some of the browsers are more serious about them, but in a way with the way that like React has exploded and we've been getting along on the components that we've had for so long, you almost feel like web components sort of miss their window. Like the, mm-hmm. they should have taken off five years ago and it just never happened. Well, and for me, you know, the reason that I was always a little bit skeptical of web components, which I'm skeptical of everything. So that's like my default position, right? (laughs) But the reason that I was skeptical of web components is to me, their benefits, right? Of kind of encapsulating the styling and encapsulating this logic on the apps that I was building at the time. For me, the more important thing wasn't encapsulating the logic. It was how do I get the components to communicate, right? Because if I click this button over here, it causes this component over there to update. And what web components didn't solve, and I don't think they've still addressed it, is that intercomponent communication, right? Which is, you know, that's the critical piece. I think that's the thing that like React really nailed, right? It was like, hey, yeah, we know you've got 50 components. And whenever one of them changes, we're just going to re-render the whole thing. Isn't that nice? You know, and, I, and so right. I feel like, um, and then a global state, right? Like we were taught for years that global variables are bad. Of course, I've always loved a good global variable, but, um, you know, that was, that was taboo for a long time. And now... The React people come in and say, yeah, yeah, we'll have one big global state bag. Won't that be nice? And it turns out it is really nice, you right. know, uh, in, in, in certain instances. Um, but it, the web component thing was interesting because I felt like Chrome, was it Chrome or was it Mozilla? Somebody was really keen on it and, like, implemented a version of it and, like, just released it. We're like, here we go. And the other browser vendors were like, whoa, we haven't even decided on the spec or anything. I think it was Chrome. And they were like, well, it's out there, you know, so... Good luck. It's like jumping back to the IE days. Yeah, I know it was. Stuff. It was super reminiscent of the IE days, I thought. And, and, and actually, I think Chrome, don't we kind of see that with Chrome now? It, it, like they're kind of moving unilaterally, right? Like there's a lot of APIs that Chrome has that are like working drafts or like on the standards track. But like they implement them and put them out and are like, well, we've got it. You know, and I like they, they do set, they're, they're throwing their weight around a little bit, I think. There's definitely some some parallels that exist between Chrome now and IE6 back in the day. Because, I mean, IE6 was like the web browser that the majority of people used. And so when they when Microsoft just threw out new APIs, people built tons and tons of apps that worked in IE6 and didn't work anywhere else, which some of us still see those around today. And it's unfortunate, but we are seeing a few like sites that are built for Chrome, yeah. right? 
Specifically, a lot of Google products <laughs> tend to be work really, really well Which, in Chrome and kind of shitty everywhere else. Like, is it not the embrace, extend, extinguish model all over again, right? Like Google's like, ooh, yeah, we'll build a web browser. It'll be great, right? That's the, you know, embrace part. Now we're in the extend phase, right, where they're adding all these custom APIs. We know what comes next, right? Microsoft taught us the path. So like pretty soon Chrome's going to start saying, oh, you can, you know, you can only use Google with Chrome. I mean, it's already kind of there. I know. I mean, on this show, we use Google Hangouts to broadcast into YouTube. And both of those are Google products and and they're great. However, occasionally we'll have a guest who comes on the show and tries to connect to this Hangout with with Firefox or Edge or Safari or whatever. It just doesn't work. Like it, it straight up just doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, the thing I like as I've gotten older, I used to, I used to like super care about this stuff. And so I was a Firefox guy forever. Like I still love the idea of Firefox. Um, and like it, you know, to me, I was like, Mozilla's got it right. Like this is the, you know, their principle, they're doing it right. And then they kind of let the dev tools, like there was kind of that, that transition between Firebug and the, and the native tools. And that took a long time. And I kind of switched over to Chrome at that point. And I'm like, man, it really is fast. And boy, does it work good everywhere I want to use it. So now I just use Chrome, even that, though I st- David's working hard to win you back, though. The drugs hooked into you, man. The drugs you gotta you gotta cut loose. I'm I mean, like like honestly, I am ready. So I did give Firefox a chance, like maybe six months ago, and it was right when they released what you guys call it, like electrolysis or yeah. electron or something. Like, where, and, and that was a huge win. And I was like, man, this is pretty fast. Like, it's pretty close. For me, the thing that that wasn't there yet was the dev tools, like I was, at the time I was working on a contract that had this huge, it was like a 28 megabyte source map, right? And it would choke, Chrome could handle it. It was a little sluggish, but Chrome could do it. But the Firefox dev tools just like couldn't, Uh, which I mean, it was ridiculous, right? 28 megabytes, what? (laughs) Um, You know, that's 10 times more space for a source map than GeoCities gave you for your whole website, right? So, but, but so that, that was the only thing is I'm just like, so I'm, I am definitely ready to go back though. Like, you know, I have the utmost faith that Mozilla will, will get there. So. All right, Todd, that's the wrap on the show then. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's your takeaway right there. <laughs> All right. One more thing I wanted to ask about, about web development. So when you're talking about like why, why you call yourself Galileo, you, you said you had blasphemous opinions about testing. And testing is an often discussed challenge on the web. A lot of people talk mm. about like, how do you test your web app? Uh, different frameworks have different like focuses on testability. Everybody's got their own opinion on mm. how it should be done. Mm. What do you think about testing on the web? What, like, what, are, what are people, what should we be doing? And maybe what are we doing wrong? So, Man, if you pull the string, I'm just going to keep going on this unit testing thing. Um, so, so for years, okay. So, for, just like to get it out there in the open, I would say that there is almost no need to unit test your web stuff, right? Like, if it's going to go in a browser, I, like whatever. I don't really think unit testing is that relevant. There's a few places probably, but if it's drawing HTML, I don't think unit testing is the right level to do that. Which I, which I know is is not a popular opinion, but. I'll tell you why I think that. So I was on a project once and I'd been kind of having these reservations about unit tests. I started writing unit tests in 2006. The first time I ever wrote a unit test, I thought to myself, this is the future. This is amazing. I'm writing code that tests other code. Oh my God, the days of writing software bugs are over. And then like sort of the dark side of unit testing appeared, especially if you've done any .NET unit testing, you would like contort your app in all these interesting ways to, to allow the code to be tested or what David Hanmeyer Hansen, Hanmeyer Hansen, DHH would call test-induced design damage, right? So you're, you're kind of, you wouldn't normally write your app this way, but because you want to test it, you're going to kind of tweak it. And, and then I started realizing that like a lot of unit tests like weren't finding bugs, right? Like, like the software was still just as buggy, but there was a downside to these unit tests. It actually took me a lot longer to fix the bug because I would change the code to work correctly and the unit tests would fail. And then I have to change all the tests. And so like, I couldn't iterate nearly as quickly. And so I was like, well, the problem here is that I'm only unit testing for the bugs that I can think of as the developer. But by definition, had I thought of them, I would have just coded around them. You know what I mean? And so there are 
there are times when unit testing is useful. Like I'll write tests and then sometimes just throw them away because I want to make sure that the code works the way I think it does. But once I know it does, I'm just like, okay, I need this test, right? It's just like this extra weight I'm gonna have to drag around with me. But the other thing is, is like, I don't think most code needs to be tested. There was a, this contract I was on that I was gonna talk about earlier. And these guys, these other, this other team, wouldn't let you commit unless you had 99% code coverage. And their stuff took forever. It, I mean, they were always the last one done. 99% future. code coverage. 99% code coverage. So, Todd, so for those who might, know who might not have, I, I, I do. But <laughs> for, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with, you know, big enterprise development, uh, maybe, maybe just tell us what code coverage means. So code coverage is the amount of, of your sort of production code that your test code exercises. And so there are all sorts of tools in JavaScript and .NET and all these other places where when you run your unit tests, it will instrument the code under test and it will give you nice pretty graphs that say, okay, in this class, you know, 80% of the lines were, were, were exercised by a unit test or these different branches were not exercised. You know, this if statement never got run, you didn't write a test for it. And so this, this team could measure this. And so once you give a team a, a metric target, they're going to hit that target at all costs. And so this team was, was all about this code coverage metric. The problem was they released some of the buggiest software out of any of the other teams. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, how, how can it be that these guys have the most tests and, and they're the, the most devoted to quote unquote quality and that they're releasing the worst software. And then when it would come to fix a bug, because they had so many tests, the fixes would take forever because they're changing dozens, if not hundreds of these unit tests. And so a lot of people that are protesting are like saying right now in their heads, like, Eric, you don't know anything about unit testing. And they're like, you're doing it wrong, right? Like, okay. The problem is it's almost never done right. Like to me, unit tests should be like, there's like 10% of the code that I write is probably good to have unit tests around. It's the stuff that's like, like fiddly logic. It's not going to the database. I don't want to mock anything. If you need to mock something, I think you've done it wrong. And, and to kind of, Put a point on it. Um, when we talk about testing, right? And I know Todd, you talk about the, the pyramid of testing, right? There's these different levels. You've got unit testing, which is, which I, is I talk about it as though I hate it. Right, 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 right. Right. I know, I, but I, like, but you, you know, you mentioned it. And so there's for for those that may not be aware, when we talk about testing, there's three usual kinds of tests. There's unit tests, which kind of run in isolation and run very fast. There's there's integration tests where two different systems are talking to each other, and then there's there's functional tests. And a functional test is, is what happens when you're maybe running like Selenium WebDriver or Puppeteer or one of those web exercises, or even just what your manual testers are doing, right? Like they're actually, you, they're exercising the app full stack. And so I'm a big fan personally of integration tests and functional tests, right? And, and especially integration tests, because I think a lot of the errors that we see in modern systems are in the boundaries between systems, right? It's, you know, you serialize this thing over the wire and something didn't work the way you thought it was going to work. And so I think integration tests are awesome. The, the traditional, you know, critique of integration tests is that they're slow. They take a long time. But my answer to that is like, well, hey, if your integration tests are slow, that means your app is slow, right? I mean, it means like, like if, if it takes a long time to do these things, what are your customers experiencing? You know what I mean? It's probably slow for them too. Um, I think integration tests can absolutely be quick. But to, to kind of bring it all home, uh, the late David Hussman, uh, an, agile, an agile evangelist and coach and sort of mentor person in the Twin Cities, who um, sadly recently passed away, he had this great quote. And I don't know if he got it from someone else or if it was his quote originally. But the quote was, um, you know, imagine you're going to the moon, right? And your QA team, because of time and budget constraints, only has time and money to run one kind of test on your spaceship before it goes to the moon, right? Do you have them run the unit tests, the integration tests, or the functional tests? Well, it's sure as shit not going to be those unit tests. You know what I mean? Like, I want the functional tests run before I go into space, right? And so that was, I thought his point was good, was like, unit, there's a place for unit testing. Just like there's a place for single page applications. But that place is, is, is not, it's not as prevalent or prominent as, as we give it today. I so guess. what do you, how do you think web applications should be tested? So I'm a big fan. And then, you know, what I've seen quote unquote work is if you've got, you know, if, if you really have put all of your application logic into the front end, if you've really actually built a bunch of like hardcore logic in JavaScript, yeah, you should probably unit test that. But if you're just testing like hide and show, like, okay, in this case, did I show this element instead of this element? To me, I think 
the the you know automated UI testing, which everyone hates. I actually think that's a great way to do it. Um, I think there's ways that you can write automated UI tests that aren't brittle. And um, Selenium is not my favorite tool, but but Chrome, Google again, has come up with Puppeteer, which is like an API to instrument Chrome specifically. So it only works for Chrome, uh, but it's fantastic. I mean, it is a fantastic API um, that really like kind of smooths out a lot of the rough edges that Selenium has, uh, just because Selenium has to be cross-browser. And those Puppeteer tests fly. I mean, you can write functional tests in Puppeteer in almost no time. Um, and everything's promise-based. So you can use async await to get like this great, you know, like procedural step, like click this, do that, whatever. Um, and you, you'd you be amazed. I mean, you can write five functional tests in Puppeteer and you'll cover like, you know, 80% of what your users do in a day. Um, so I really think that the answer is some unit tests and a lot more integration of functional tests. Um, you know, specifically on the web, we're dealing with UI. UI stuff's hard to test, right? Like why burn all that time if, if you know, you're not going to, um, like even get very like great results. And the last thing is I've always been a big fan of like, um, you know, part of the reason we started TrackJS, right, was like you can only do so much QA. Eventually you have to push that software into production and it's still going to break, right? Like that's for sure. Like no matter how much you QA it, like unless you're the NASA people, your software is going to break in prod. So you might as well spend some of that time that you were going to like slave over these unit tests. You might as well spend some of that time adding sweet monitoring so you know when something goes wrong and then quick fix it. You know what I mean? It's almost better in a lot of cases to be able to find the problem really fast and send a quick fix for it because customers actually love that. Customers actually love to like report a bug and have it fixed the same day. Like they think that's the coolest thing in the world. Absolutely. So, so like you touched on it a little bit, you can create any type of test that you want, but the one thing that you don't control is the client. So the like people could run into API issues, people could mm -hmm. run into um, just general browser bugs. Now you and Todd are both from TrackJS, but Todd never talks about TrackJS like he should. So I get to ask you, um, can you explain to everybody what TrackJS is, why they need it, and what it's going to catch? Sure, absolutely. So so TrackJS was really a reaction um, from what Todd and I were working on at the time. We were, we were actually at a, a big corp together um, working on a very large application. And we were realizing this is a backbone app. And we're like, we're putting all of this application logic into JavaScript. And then we take that JavaScript and we send it across the country or maybe across the world to some browser somewhere that's running, you know, how many like ask toolbars and has how many viruses. And we're going to hope that it runs the same way as it did in our suite development environment, right? And so we were finding that the web is so hostile. There's all these different things that can go wrong that are outside of your control, like you said. And so we realized that we had great tools for server monitoring. We could always tell what's going on on the server. Logging is kind of a solved problem on the server side. But there were, there were no great tools on the client side to know when your JavaScript was breaking. And so, um, you know, Todd pitched me the idea and was like, we should just build this thing. I was like, that is the most obviously good idea that I've heard like in ages, right? It's like, we have to build it. It's too good of an idea not to. Um, and so that's kind of how the whole thing got started was really scratching our own itch in a certain way um, and realizing that like, you know, with this new paradigm of, of client rendered apps, there's this big blind spot in terms of that monitoring. So what type of, what type of problems is TrackJS going to catch? What, we, sort of, what sort of stuff am I going to log into my my dashboard and find. Yeah, so it's, you know, we, we've we got, it runs the gamut, right? It depends on, some of these web apps are, are it's super fun actually. Every customer is different. Um, you know, so on the on the sites that are built with older stuff, like if you're still kind of doing jQuery soup, um, or, you know, we're gonna, <laughs> or, or Mutuals. No, or, no, or, no, or, no, or, we'll run with jQuery soup. Or, I like or Prototype, or maybe you got Scriptaculous <laughs> on the page still, whatever. Um, you know, you, you get a lot of them, like refactoring errors, right? Like people like change a bunch of code, but they don't have all the new like TypeScript tooling and all the like sweet babble and webpack and all that other stuff. So like, you change a function name and if you don't like, you know, control C, control V, find that everywhere else. Like, so, you know, you get all sorts of bugs like that. Any place where you just like fat fingered, typoed, whatever, right? Like a lot of those common dynamic language issues are going to surface immediately. And the great thing about our tool is it runs on every page or, you know, you can run it on as many pages as you want. You often don't have time to QA every page in your site but your users are going to use every page in your site and we're watching, right? So we know like, oh, you forgot to QA this like limited use page. Oh, but there's a bug on it. Well, your user found it. Now you know about it. 
Um, now in the in the kind of the React and well, I don't want to you know say too many bad things about Angular, but I hate it. The and, floor um, is the floor is yours, sir. And um, and we see like a really unbelievable amount of errors from Angular. I mean, it is like an error factory. They should just call it error factory, right? Instead of Angular. Todd, and, um, no, Todd was trying to hide off screen. <laughs> so, but it's great for us, right? I mean, business is good, right? Because because if you if you use Angular, you really need our tool. And um, <laughs> and uh, but uh, you know, to be serious, um, Angular is just there's there's a lot of moving pieces in Angular, and especially Angular two plus. Um, you know, it's I kind of call it. It's like kind of the the spring MVC of the web world, right? It's just lots of boilerplate, lots of code is being executed to make anything happen. And until recently you had these string templates in Angular where like if you fat fingered a name, there was no tooling support, there was no compile time support. You didn't know it was broken until you ran it. And so a lot of those runtime exceptions, I mean, we catch them, right? We catch unhandled promise rejections, we catch all kinds of stuff. Um, so that's like one part of it where just like, you know, mistakes. Then the other thing like, we recommend is like go ahead and use console.error to start logging like error cases that aren't actually like JavaScript errors. They're like your application is in an error state, right? Like the user did something and got some response from the server and it's like, mm -mm, we can't continue, right? This is weird. Um, so, you know, you've kind of got first class logging support where you can write your own logs and we'll, we'll send them um, to your dashboard so you can see them and I mean, the idea is just to really give you that context because you can't be there. You can't ask your customer to open their developer tools and read you what the console says. Um, so, you know, you need you need something to, to send that back so that you can see it. So without giving away the family recipe, how does it work? I mean, it's really, how, how are you able to catch all this amazing stuff? Well, so, you know, there's a, there's a script agent that has been kind of modified and tweaked and iterated on over the last five years as the, as the web has gotten more sort of complex. We've added all these new kind of handling capabilities to it. So, you know, recently, um, you know, the unhandled promises and in, in wrapping the fetch API and some of those newer APIs that that also experience errors. And we're kind of always, we, we wrap at a very low level, the JavaScript APIs native to the browser, which is why we work with, with every framework, uh, because we're wrapping these like super low level um, APIs. And so we've kind of got this very lightweight visibility into, oh, you know, add event listener just through an error. Let's go ahead and, and capture that. And then we transmit it back to um, our ingestion endpoint. And so Todd actually does most of the, the script side. Uh, whereas I tend to focus more on once that error has come into our servers, um, that's kind of where I more get involved. Uh, and so we've got, you know, what we one thing we didn't realize when we started Track.js, and this is kind of a funny story. Um, we have four customers to start, you know, many, many years ago. And the app was like, I think it was still SQL Server back into the time or whatever. And um, one of the customers was Major League Soccer. And they were having some big match. And we had limited kind of view into what our customers were doing with our product at the time. And all of a sudden, the, the guy reaches out and he says, hey, I can't log into your app to look at my errors. Like, it's frozen. We're like, well, what do you, what do you mean? And we didn't have any kind of impersonation capabilities. And eventually we realized, oh yeah, they were sending us millions of JavaScript errors. And we didn't realize that like, if you have a busy app, if you've got, you know, a million page views a day, a million like potentially you could, you know, and, and every one of those people experiences one or maybe more JavaScript errors, you have this incredible fire hose of JavaScript error data coming at you all the time. And so, uh, we got buried, right? We were just getting like DDoS'd by our own customers. Right. <laughs> uh, and so, and so that, that was actually one of the, that's probably what actually, you know, in terms of scaling, that was actually one of the, the things that we had to deal with the most was just that continually ramp up of, of error traffic. And if someone releases, you know, if someone else has a bad day, we have a bad day, right? Because all those errors are coming to us. So, um, you know, so to that end, right, you know, one of the things that people always assume is that we're, we're based in the cloud. And um, we actually host everything on bare metal servers because for us, we just, we need that throughput. We need that performance of bare metal servers, of NVMe hard drives, um, of all that stuff. And it just, you know, the bang for buck on those bare metal servers is so much better. So it's, uh, it's all hosted on physical machines. Okay, so using some of your self-proclaimed crotchety old man ideas of development, how have you applied some of those toward, toward building Track.js? Yeah, Great question. 
So we we are not on the front lines of any new technology, really. Um, so you know we're we're all I think everyone you know we, we have some philosophical differences amongst the people that that work on TrekJS, but for the most part, I think everyone's in agreement that we stay away from the bleeding edge. Um, you know, so we're not on the latest version of .NET Core by any means. Uh, in fact, we're still just on the .NET framework. Um, you know, we've up until up until literally three weeks ago. We were using jQuery from several years ago, Backbone from several years ago. Um, you know, it was tools that we knew, tools that we knew exactly how they would fail. And we just started adding a little sprinkling of React to our application. Not even in production yet. It's not even in production yet. <laughs> but think about it. We waited, was that four years, five years? Maybe not. Maybe React hasn't been around that long. But like, you know, we're, we're very cautious of picking, you know, any new technology. And we've, you know, another great example is um, everybody's pushing towards HTTPS, right? So everybody wants everything over SSL, which is fine. And for years, we hosted our documentation on GitHub pages because GitHub pages is great. You know, you push the build, like they do the build for you, they host it for you. It's wonderful. But until recently, they didn't support HTTPS on custom domains. And so we were like, yeah, man, you know, Google's going to start penalizing us. Should we, should we host our own infrastructure, which of course we can do, but we, we really like to not, like the less care and feeding of machines we have to do, the better. And so we just waited, which is, which is often our strategy of like, okay, there's no clear path. Let's just wait. And sure enough, all of a sudden, GitHub starts, you know, cranking out SSL for custom domains and the problem solved itself, right? And so nice. that's, you know, we... I, th- I would say it's just a, it's a very cautious approach to software development. It's a very measured approach, and sort of my default at least is do nothing, right? Like, you know, some people have this bias for action of like we got to get a new framework in there, we got to get a new tool, or we got to make a change. And you know, I guess my bias is for inaction. <laughs> like, let's just wait and see, right? Let's just, are we sure? Um, you know, and, and whether that's good or not, I don't know. But that's that's part of the reason I was excited to start TrackJS was because I could could try and build software in the way that I thought you know, you could build it in a more efficient way. You know, I, I see a lot of waste in software development, a lot of churn, a lot of people are, are burning a lot of time and money. And I don't think it, it needs to be that way. And so, the, you know, TrackJS is really a chance to try that. So Awesome. So, so Todd, this includes you as well, because you guys work on two different parts of, of TrackJS. What sort of challenges do you face in building out this, this big system? Um, one of the things that come to mind for me right away is security, right? So we just, I read yesterday that stat, is it stat counter got, um, got hacked and it was injecting terrible stuff in, in, <laughs> into, all right. No, it was, it, it was ending up stealing money from somebody at a specific site or something like uh, what sort of, what were some of the pain points or are some of the pain points of building out track JS and ensuring that, your your trackers doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Todd, I'll let you start. I've been talking the whole time. So well, well, first I just want to point out that the stack counter thing is awful. But the thing that it, it injected was a Bitcoin miner. Because you know, when you think Bitcoin, you clearly think of upstanding citizens all around the world now, purely listen, engaging listen. in libertarian currency. <laughs> not, not at all about cyber criminals stealing money. From people. Okay. <laughs> David, David, I just want to chime in. I do. I do actually also agree that, like, when I think of Bitcoin, I think of kind of the same thing as like the wares guys that we were talking about earlier. Like some some good natured, good meaning people, but but man, there's a kind of a, a seamy underbelly too. You know? you know, the photographer that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, Todd, he was here photographing my Lambos. So I, I just, sorry, I just couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> let that just, just lay there after all of our, our historical <laughs> conversations about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. All right, but, but, but challenges. So uh, as Eric mentioned earlier, I, I, uh, my technical involvement in, in a lot of the system these days is on maintaining the agent code on the front end, and um, the, the challenges there. We haven't really had a, a big security challenge with it, and maybe that's just because we've been, you know, we've been lucky and we've been focused on on preventing that from happening. Knock on, knock on wood. Um, the the potential for security is like, yeah, there, like that could be 
a, a attack vector against us is if somebody could get into our CDN or get into our build pipeline and inject potentially malicious code in there. And so we're aware of that of that entry point or of that uh, that vector for attack. And so we have we have some internal monitoring on that. Like everybody gets an alert anytime our client side our CDN stuff changes. And so we're we're very aware. Like everybody is aware when a change is about to go out, and we do really thorough testing on that. I would say that the cross-browser testing is our biggest challenge on the client side um, and what we've probably spent the most time doing because that agent goes into so many sites running every different browser in markets all over the world. The environment that it runs in is very, very diverse. And so and it has the potential of breaking our customer sites, which, you know, kind of defeats the underlying goal. It's like <laughs> people install Track.js not to like, because they think we're going to fix their site. And if they install it and we break it, well, that kind of like destroys all of our credibility. And so spending uh, time to make sure that, you know, first do no harm with our agent. It may not capture everything we want, but it's not going to break it uh, is, is I would say the biggest challenge on the client side. Yeah. And, and the, most of the security challenges we face are really on kind of my side of the fence um, and just making sure that we can protect the machines from attackers. And, you know, we take a pretty, you know, our minimalist approach to, to, to kind of scaling up machinery and stuff, you know, we are very careful about adding new pieces of infrastructure because each new piece of infrastructure is a new attack vector, right? And that's another reason that we usually use very bulletproof technology is because, you know, it's it's been hard and people have, have tried to exploit it for years. Um, and so, you know, in general, we try and keep things as simple as possible just to limit the amount of surface area that an attacker could get at us with. Um, uh, you know, one thing that you'll find out too, if you if you haven't already, if you run a, an internet business for any length of time, there are plenty of quote unquote white hat hackers who are willing to constantly try and break into your site for you, uh, and then try and extort money from you after they do that. So, um, you know, we don't get to rest on the security front because there's always people trying, you know, the OWASP top ten like exploits against us. Um, so yeah, I, I mean. I, you just got to be vigilant, you know, and and hope that uh, there's no new zero day that that gets you. So, so you mentioned a little bit earlier that the tracker is roughly five years old. Um, how does it feel to work in five year old code? Does it feel legacy, guys? Does it you, you? I know that you've both mentioned that you don't like um, you like using stuff that's stable, that's that works, that's been working a long time. Does the code base feel legacy or, or like what is your general sense of, of, of going into work and coding this thing every day, maintaining this thing every day as well? I mean, from, from my perspective, one of the things that we did when we built out the server side of everything was, was kind of build it in what I would call the simplest way possible. So in a lot of enterprise apps, there's interfaces and services and repositories and layers and layers of abstraction. And we kept abstraction to like a, a, a tremendous minimum. And so while we still will encounter code, code that is, you know, five years old and kind of like, oh, this is, you know, this is old. Our app, our, like we haven't entombed the app in so much code that it's hard to make changes. So even when we find that old piece, it's pretty easy to sub in a new piece at this point because we've been so disciplined about not letting that abstraction and not letting that code get out of hand. I mean, it's this this constant strive to, to keep it slim. So, you know, I, I don't mind working on it, to be honest. What about the agent side, Todd? The agent side, uh, touching on the, uh, the core challenge of it is being, you know, cross-browser compatible and, and working in all the systems has a lot of like those niggly edge cases. Like, and I'm sure you, you saw some of those working with, you know, core Moo tools and you know early versions of jQuery and that and that sort of stuff. Um, we have a lot of that in our app. And when I uh, when I stumble onto a particular function that I need to to touch um, that has a bunch of like the you know solves a particular issue in one kind of framework or one kind of app, it it feels a little gross. But we did a good job leaving lots of like very descriptive comments about like, hey, this is this bug for this reason. Here's it's got to kind of stay here. So parts of it do feel legacy, right? Uh, I don't know that I can get around that. But uh, I, we tried to, to keep it as simple as possible. Like Eric said, um, we're trying right now to like 
modernized the client a little bit. We just released a new version where we support JavaScript modules, which nice. was kind of fun. Um, starting to build more stuff in TypeScript, which is kind of fun. Uh, I could see maybe updating the agent to TypeScript at some point, um, which could be cool and it would involve a lot of touching it to like massage it over. But I don't think it would be too terrible, like because it's not that big. Um, we really try and avoid code for the sake of code. What like, what is your what is your um, browser support then? How far are we still going back to IE six? Uh, yeah. We, yeah, well, kind of. So like we work back into IE six. Like the 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 agent will turn on and it won't <coughs> it won't fail. It won't break the browser. It won't it won't like screw up. However, there were some network limitations with how we could transmit data that don't actually work in IE six or seven. Um, the ability for us to send dom uh, data cross domain back in those browsers required like some iframe magic, which we weren't really willing to take on at that point, and their usage has dropped off. So like we we test against IE six and seven to make sure we don't break, but we don't we don't actively support it. We do actively support down to IE eight. Okay, that's a good, that's a good support level. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So I have to ask Todd, you have a guitar back there. I have a guitar over here. Eric, I'm seeing music instruments behind you. Yes. The, Is the it, are, beat, we, are we going to start a band? Or? The beat, well, that's the beat making studio right there. I have a, a small love of obnoxiously loud rap music, actually, uh, <laughs> amongst other kinds of music. I like electronic music a lot, too. Uh, but so I, I, it's kind of a, a hobby of uh, making sort of beats and uh, other things. So, but I'd be, yeah, man, if you want to, if you want to get a band going, I'm all about it. <laughs> so Eric, Eric, you've been competing in like these Reddit remix competition things. Yeah. Well, so like the, you know, one of the hardest parts about making music, right. Is getting anyone to listen to it because I mean, there's, there's so much of it everywhere. And so on Reddit, these guys uh, in both uh, the EDM uh, production subreddit and the making hip hop subreddit, uh, have these challenges, right? Well, they're like, you know, here's a sample pack, right, of, of 30 sounds, make a song with it. Um, or yeah, here's a track, remix it, or here's whatever. And so then you make, you submit, and then people vote on it. Um, and that's actually been really enlightening just to see what other people are making and to see how they do things and like even what kind of music people like. Uh, because like in the EDM production forum, the, the like, what you should optimize for when you're making a song for them is very different than what you should optimize for if you're making like a beat for the hip hop community. Right. And so it's kind of fun to, to see what, what different stuff people care about in that world um, and to try and mimic it and kind of make something that people enjoy. So what, what subreddits are these? Uh, so the, the one is literally a R slash EDM per EDM prod or EDM production. Let me see. It is EDM production. Uh, and so that one's got a sample pack. That one has a monthly sample pack challenge. Uh, so the, actually the October one is over uh, and they they announced the winner. So then the winner of that competition will create the sample pack that the next month people get to compete with. Uh, and then the other one is our making hip hop. And they don't like their moderators aren't as good. Um, so you actually have to search in there and it's, it's, uh, it's called the one kit challenge or OKC. So if you search for OKC, you'll see all of them uh, where they release, you know, a kit to make a beat out of and then you submit. And that one runs like every week. Um, so and, and like it's fun because the EDM prod guys, they spend hours on these. Like the guys that win are amazing. And the making hip hop, they'll be like, oh, threw a beat together in 20 minutes. Right. And it's and that's kind of fun, too, because it's, you know, you get it's, it's fun to do both. Right. So I remember doing that back in high school, the. I'm trying to think of the software name. I think it was called, it came from Sonic Foundry, which was actually a, a Madison, Wisconsin based company. But that was, that was the, the only, uh, what, what are they called? Loops? The Loops? Um, I've heard of Sonic Foundry. I think they got bought out by somebody at one point. Oh, I'm sure. How, like, do you feel like you have a, there's sort of a connection between the way that you make music and the way that you create software? Like, like is there some sort of, parallel so i so i think so my here's my theory on the subject so i think software is fascinating to me from kind of a creative perspective and i don't want to go like full software craftsman on it but like i think it's interesting the uh, software you can solve the same problem in software in a dozen different ways and i think you know to me true competence in software development 
is, is solving a problem in a simple and elegant and easy to understand way. You know, not all the complexity, not all the abstraction, but simplicity. And I feel like with music, there's a parallel. A lot of the, the coworkers I work with that have these music backgrounds, they will make music that no one wants to hear. It's hexatonic, you know, weird scales, and it doesn't even sound like music, but to them it's really exciting because it's really complex. But to me, the cool thing about music is what if you could simplify a musical idea to the point where it is widely popular? Um, you know, the Beatles are a common example. Like they were geniuses, not because of their complexity, because they could simplify music so much to make it accessible to everyone. Um, and so I, to me, it's that, it's that striving for simplicity in both uh, that I think is, is so compelling. I think that is a fantastic point and a great place to end the show right up there. So how we, how we like to end it is with takeaways. So each of us kind of coming up with what, what core thing do we think was, was really interesting in the show and a core idea we want to leave everybody with. David, why don't you go first? Well, I'm glad that we all have a love of GeoCities. That's near and dear to my heart because that's where I got started as well. I that really like the next Firefox like like side project is to restart GeoCities. Um, well, there I is NeoCities. Yahoo buried it so far down. I don't know that we're going to be able to dig it back up. Uh, I really like I really like the uh, Eric's idea of keeping things simple. Not always going for the um, new exciting thing. The new exciting thing is cool until you run into a problem. Hope that someone has a fix for it quick um, and find out, you know, down the line that you've either moved on to something else, you weren't willing to create the fix yourself, or you need to back up to something more, more reliable. That's really one of my pet peeves in software development because regardless of which route you go, there's always going to be problems when you jump at something before it's ready. How about you, Todd? Eric describes himself as a, um, as a raging pessimist in software. And I think that that's really important because software, no matter working on, on a software system is incredibly complex. There's so many pieces that can go wrong. There's so many pieces where their complex orchestration is happening. And there's so many places that, that everything could just, you know, totally mess up and, and, and cause problems for days. And unless you think about like, how will this go wrong? If you're, if you're optimistic by nature and you think that everything is going to work out, you're going to add more and more complexity and, and not expect the problems. And so I think a pessimistic attitude is really important when when designing a piece of software, when when you know coming to coming up with a new architecture and operating it. I think you have to be a pessimist and, and think about how it's going to go wrong. Because it Eric, will go wrong. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, when, and when it does, TrackJS is there to catch you from your fall. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Eric, what what's a what's a good takeaway for you? What what do you want to leave the audience with? Well, if I leave so. You know, we were talking about, I like the, the legacy question, right? Of like, what's it like to work on software that's five years old and that's legacy now? And I think legacy gets a, a bad connotation. You know, you hear the word legacy software and you think, ah, I don't want any, I don't want any part of this. And I think that's the wrong attitude to have on legacy software. Le legacy software, even though it's a little gross and there's little barnacles everywhere of all these little bug fixes and everything else, the legacy software is what got you there. You know what I mean? That's like the software that made money or the software that got you to the next step. And like, it's only survived because it was useful. And uh, so I, I have a little saying uh, that I like, and uh, it's that if your code's not a little bit gross, it's probably not doing anything very useful, right? Because, because if someone had already abstracted all this stuff into this nice, neat little thing, you wouldn't need to write your software. Um, so I think that, you know, Legacy is actually almost like we treat our, our elders with respect in you know societally sometimes. And I feel like almost that old code kind of deserves a certain amount of respect as well in terms of like, wow, this is this was really this solved a problem and it survived, whereas most code does not. Um, so I'd like to see the attitude against legacy software change a little bit. I like that. If your code's not do not doing anything gross, it's probably not very useful. That is a fantastic quote right there. That is fantastic. Is that an Eric Brandis original? It is. I made that up. Yeah, I made that up. I was, <laughs> I, was talking to some, I was talking to some junior developer like five years ago, six years ago. 
And he was like, oh man, this code's so gross. And it was this piece of this app that was mission critical. And it was gross. It was like, man, we don't touch it. It works fine. It's, it's gross, but there's really not a way to clean it up, right? Like it's just, it needs to exist this way. And so that was when I coined that phrase and I liked it when I said it. So <laughs> I've, I've, I've kept it around for many years. So. Well, it's fantastic. <laughs> Anything else that you'd like to plug before we close it up? No, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you uh, all for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. I think this was a great episode. I think, you know, a lot of, of web development talk is, is positive and optimistic about the future. And I think, you know, taking it down a peg and being like, you know what, we're, we need to build valuable things and, uh, and we need to figure out how we're going to think, make things that actually operate for a long time is, is an important topic. A little so dose of the real world. <laughs> so thanks so much for being on the show, Eric. Yep. Um, I'll put some links to show notes uh, for you to get more information and and get in contact with Eric. Uh, for people who want to like learn more, should they hit you up on Twitter? Yeah, for sure. Twitter's good. Twitter's a spot. Sounds good. I'll put a link out in the show notes. Um, we'll be back. Uh, the Script and Style Show will be back next Thursday for another episode. If there's something you'd like us to discuss or a guest you think we should talk to, please let us know on Twitter. I'm at Todd H. Gardner. And I'm at David Walsh Blog. See you next week. The Script and Style Show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.